thank your pastors, Pastor Jones and Pastor MacArthur, for the opportunity to come and to bring the word of the Lord to you. It's good to be here again. Uh, I, I was here visiting in 2018, I believe, February 2018, and it's good to be back in Vancouver. I first came to Vancouver in 2002. This is when I first met uh, Scott and Tommy, and it's good to see all their friends that we met back then also visiting with us tonight. We're thankful that you've come out. It's good to be able to present the Lord's work across the world and to know that the God we worship, the living God, the God of heaven and earth, is the God for the nations who pities the nations. And I want to tonight draw your attention to the last verse of Jonah, the last verse of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11. <coughs> excuse my croaky voice. I was going to ask you to excuse my Irish accent. You'll have to get used to that. I can't do anything about that. I trust you will be able to understand me. If I speak slowly and you listen fast, we should be able to uh, cope tonight. But I've been battling uh, a sore throat and hoarseness all week. I've been traveling for the past three Sundays now in North, North, uh, New Hampshire, North Carolina, down in California with uh, Calvin Gallagher, you know Calvin, and now over at Victoria this morning, and now here I'm flying back home tomorrow evening. So I'd ask you to pray for traveling mercies and for smooth travels. I like not only to get there safely, I like to get there smoothly. And so you can pray for smooth travels tomorrow as we travel. The last verse of Jonah. The Lord says to Jonah, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Jonah I'm sure all the children know, and I'm glad to see a number of children here tonight. It's good to see the children out in the house of the Lord. Jonah, you know, was the only prophet commissioned by God who refused to take the message that the Lord gave him. And he ran from God in the other direction so that he did not have to preach to the Gentiles. The Jews, of course, had a long-standing aversion to the Gentiles and a dislike for the Gentiles. The Jews had this idea that the gospel was for them and them only, that the God of heaven was only for them, although Jonah, in the words to the sailors in chapter 1, really blows that theory out of the water, pardon the pun, uh, he said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, verse 9 of chapter 1, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land and the dry land. And in that phrase, Jonah is essentially saying that the God of heaven is not just the God of Israel, the relationship between Israel and God, but that he is the God over all the earth. And so it should not have surprised Jonah. It ought not to have surprised Jonah that God had an interest 
in non-Jewish, non-Israelite people. That he had an interest in the nations. This interest in the nations goes back a long way. I'm not going to go through the whole history of missiology in the Old Testament, but you will understand that the first 2,000 years of world history, i.e. from Adam to Abraham, God dealt with, with humanity as a whole. It was only with Abraham that God focused in on one nation with, from whom he would bring the Messiah eventually. And that period from Abraham to the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, was a period of roughly, give or take, 2,000 years. And now, from the period of Messiah from Jesus to ourselves, is roughly 2,000 years. So it is evident, looking at the history of the world alone, that God has had an interest in the nations. And over in 1 Kings chapter 8, we read in Solomon's great prayer of dedication at the temple, a very interesting little insight into Solomon's mind when he's praying for the nation. I'm not going to read the entire prayer. It goes on uh, for over 60 verses, so I don't think we have time to read it tonight. But right in the center of that prayer, right in the center of that prayer, where Solomon is praying for the Israelite people, for his people at the temple, he prays this. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake. Interesting. Interesting that Solomon in this great epic prayer of dedication includes in there an interest for the Gentiles, for the nations round about. Woven throughout the entire Old Testament is this manifestation that God is a God of the nations. You come into the Psalms, Psalm 65, I suppose, it's the clearest. But throughout the Psalms, there is this prayer and proclamation to the nations, that the nations may hear, that the people of the world may hear. And throughout the Old Testament, there are two general methods, if you like, if I can use New Testament terminology, there are two general methods of evangelism. The centrifugal, the, the moving out, the forcing out, the centripetal, the drawing in. And this is what the, the idea of drawing in was the idea of a, a foreigner seen into the land of, of, of Israel and being attracted to that. Being attracted to Israel because of the way they were living before a holy God. Then there's the centrifugal where they're to go out and this Jonah, I suppose, is the only official, uh, the only prophet where God sent to the nations where he's to go out and preach to the Ninevites. The same methods of evangelism, the same methods of the church today are in vogue. We are told to live before the world in such a way that they might see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. At the same time, while, we're, while Christianity is to have an attractiveness to it, we are to be attractive. Unfortunately, the church too often 
harms itself by the way we live, by the scandals that we portray to the world. And the world looks on in mockery. The church is to live in such a way that we attract the world. There's another interesting... (coughs) Pardon me. There's another interesting method by which God moved among the nations in the Old Testament, and that is by his mighty acts, particularly acts of judgment. Remember in in Exodus when Moses is told to go to, to Pharaoh, Moses essentially went to Pharaoh as an evangelist. And part of the purpose for God sending Moses to Pharaoh was that Pharaoh might know that I am the Lord. That's what the Lord said to him. More than once, that Pharaoh might know that Yahweh is the Lord. Of course, you know the story, how Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then you come into the the wilderness period, and you come to the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. And what what was it that brought Rahab to believe in the God of Israel? Was it the testimony and the witness and the evangelism, if you like, of the two spies? No. It is interesting, I preached on this this morning in Victoria, so I'm not going to rehash that sermon tonight. I'll spare you that. But it is interesting that the two spies brought nothing of information back that helped in the capture of Jericho. And when you look at the the references to the spies throughout that passage, they are called spies in chapter 2. In chapter 6, when he's referring back to the story of Rahab, they are called the two men. And in chapter 6, verse 25, verse 17 and 25, they are referred to as messengers. Interesting. Interesting. And so I think what is happening in that story is that Joshua sent out two spies and God sent out two messengers to bring Rahab. But what was it that brought Rahab? It was the mighty acts of God that had happened 40 years before at the Red Sea. We had heard of you. We have heard of God. How he dried up the waters of the sea. How you killed, you destroyed the two, the armies of the Amorites, the uh, Gion and, and Og, Zihon and Og rather. It was these mighty acts of God that drew Rahab to believe in the living God. And so it ought not to have surprised Jonah when God sent him to the the Ninevites. But it did. Disappointed him anyhow. And he was hesitant, rebellious, and refused to go. Refused to go. There was, of course, the, 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 that back story of Israel's uh, dislike for the Gentiles and Israel's uh, bias uh, and bigotry against the Gentiles, the nations. But there was also other circumstances going on more intimate with between Nineveh and Israel at that time and there was a hatred had generated between Israel and Nineveh. That does not, ex- that does not excuse what Jonah did. It explains a little bit of it, but it does not excuse it. And God sent Jonah 
to Nineveh. You know the story how Jonah refused to go, got swallowed by a great fish, uh, which delivered him from drowning in the sea. Jonah would rather have drowned than take the gospel to the Ninevites. He'd rather have died. He said that. We've already read it this evening. He'd rather have died. It's interesting how God reasons with Jonah. And I think, I think we can learn a lot from the prayer of Jonah chapter 2 and how he prayed. But also in chapter 2, or chapter 4 rather, when God said to Jonah, are you doing well to be angry, Jonah? Chapter 4. And, and Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Let me just, let me just insert something here. Not related to the missionary aspect of Jonah's work here, but, but I think it's, there's, a, there's a little insight into how we ought to pray, I think, when we are wrestling with God. I think as Christians, we are too timid in, in our wording. It, it is born, I believe, out of a reverence for God, rightly so. Uh, but you read through the Bible, you read through the Old Testament particularly, and you read of these men and women, Hannah, I'm thinking of Hannah in 1 Samuel, who wrestled with God, who argued with God. And God wants us to wrestle with Him. God wants us to argue with Him. I'm, I'm speaking not so much in our daily prayers, but in those times when we are struggling with life, when we're caught in the interface between our faith and the life that we live on earth. And in that interface between faith and reality, if I can put it that way, God wants us to wrestle, argue with Him. Don't be afraid to bring your arguments to God. Don't be afraid to articulate your heart and mind to God because God already knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows your thoughts. Articulate it and argue it out with Him. Come now, He says, let us reason together. And this is what Jonah does, and God does not rebuke Jonah for speaking to him in that way. I could take you through different aspects, different passages in the Old Testament to highlight this. But it's interesting as you read through the Old Testament, I just highlight that so that you notice it as you read through the Scriptures and notice how men and women prayed to God. The last verse of Jonah, God brings this to Jonah. Should not I be to have pity on Nineveh, that great city? It is interesting that the book of Jonah ends with a question. A question. Now, I think there are a number of reasons for that. First reason I would give probably is that God reasons with us in the question format in order to search our hearts. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3 when God pursued Adam in the garden? How did God come to Adam? With a series of indicatives or with a series of commands or with a series of exhortations? No. God came to Adam with questions. Why? 
Because Adam was made in the image of God, with a mind, with a capability and responsibility and obligation to reason with God. And now Jonah is rebellious against God and rebellious against the commission that God has placed upon him. And God comes to him with questions in order to search out Jonah's heart. Jonah wrestled with this question. It's as though the Lord threw a question at him and walked off, leaving Jonah to wrestle with this question. Because Jonah never answered this question. Jonah is wrestling with this question right throughout the book. And he never comes to a conclusion in his own mind with this question. Does God have a right to pity Nineveh? And I'd say what's more, something more. The Israelites were wrestling with this question. Not just Jonah. I think Jonah's representative here of the Israelites. This is a question that they will deal with. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? But not only was it a question that, that Jonah must wrestle through and, and, and work through in his mind to search his heart, it is a question that demands a response that is investigative of God. God is drawing Jonah's mind into a study of theology. How does God think of Nineveh? What does God think of Nineveh? What is God's intention for Nineveh? And so Jonah's drawn into this question that demands him thinking about God and God's intention for the Ninevites. It's remarkable. It is remarkable that God ends this book, that the Holy Spirit ends this book with this question. This question hung in Israel for another four or five hundred years. And it wasn't answered until we come to the book of Acts. We read it this evening in Acts chapter 11. Peter also wrestled with this question. Should not I pity the nations? If I can broaden it out beyond Nineveh. Should not I pity the nations? Look at Acts chapter 11. <coughs> Peter says, remember, the, the story really is in chapter 10, but Peter you knew the story of the, the sheets coming down out of heaven with the unclean animals. And, and Peter said, the Lord said to Peter, Peter, rise and eat, kill and eat. And Peter says, not me, Lord. I have never touched anything that's unclean. I eat kosher. Not me, Lord. And three times the Lord had to bring that sheet down and convince Peter through a process. You see how embedded how systemic this idea was in Israel until through a series of circumstances Peter is brought to the house of Cornelius 
And he begins to preach and the Holy Spirit comes down and they speak in tongues. And Peter is a believer that the Gentiles are now brought in and he eats with them. But the disciples are not yet. And so Peter, while Peter now is convinced, he has to go back to Jerusalem and convince the disciples in Jerusalem. And this is what he's doing in chapter 11. Verse 15, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift, which was the Holy Spirit, the same gift as the Jews had at Pentecost. Now the Gentiles have received at the house of Cornelius. And since then God has given them the same gift as we received. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's the response Jonah should have given. Who was I that I should stand in God's way? And when the disciples heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Beloved, this is what God has been doing in the history of his people from, from time immemorial is dealing with our prejudices, dealing with that which hinders our working and moving forward with the Lord. And he began that process in Jonah with, with, with this hanging question, just hanging there at the end of the Old Testament for four or five hundred years, unanswered, until Peter comes along, and Peter has to wrestle with it. The disciples come along, and they have to wrestle with it. They realize that God now is indeed the God of the nations. He pities the nations. I don't know your heart. I don't know your circumstances. Perhaps there's a transition period in your own life where the Lord is wrestling with you and dealing with something, some aspect of your life. And he's in the process of that transition where he will change you. And you will look back perhaps in a year or two years' time and discover that the Lord began, when the Lord began to work and discover how the Lord worked and brought you to a new and fresh relationship with Himself through His Word. The best illustration I have of this is in the, in the life of my wife to bring it into my missionary context now. I was, we were married in 2003 with the intention of going to, to, to uh, Cameroon, West Africa. We were married with that intention. My wife was intending to go to the mission field together with me. Um, and while I was here in Vancouver, we married here in Vancouver. While I was here, that project back in Ireland collapsed and I was left here uh, after doing a year in France and a year in linguistic studies 
uh, two struggling years of education. And now it seemed that the Lord had just collapsed that whole project. And at that time, uh, a request came in to plant a church in Victoria. We went to Victoria. We were there for 10 years. And in 2018 then, we, or 2016 rather, we, we moved from Victoria back to Toronto. I had been invited back to Kenya. I'd been in Kenya in 95, first of all, on an exploratory trip. But in 2016, I was invited back to, to Kenya to do a seminar to teach pastors in rural northeast uh, Kenya. And I was invited back in 2017, and I saw a huge, a huge need among rural pastors in East Africa. The need, according to one local pastor said, the need is critical for resources. I'll get to that in a moment. And so I came back to, to Victoria or Toronto. We were living in Toronto. And um, my, heart, my heart was exercised for Africa, afresh. Uh, but between 2003 and 2017, we had four, five kids and two of them were born with type 1 diabetes. Two of them were born with cystic fibrosis. And in Nairobi, a third was, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in Nairobi. So three with type 1 diabetes and two with CF. And so when, when the children became, came along, the idea of missions, especially on the ground in East Africa, rural East Africa in the bush, that idea had just dissipated, just evaporated. And it was totally off the radar in my wife's mind, but not mine. And the Lord was stirring up, the Lord was stirring up my nest, trying to. I had an interest in helping the pastors in East Africa, and I came to the point we were living in Toronto, and I, I said to my wife, um, I said to the Lord, Lord, if you want me in Africa, you speak to Grace, my wife. And I left it. I left it with the Lord to deal with her. And just a few weeks later, perhaps months, I can't remember the, the chronology, perhaps months, she came to me one night and she said these words. And this is, gets me back to the transition. I'm not willing to go, but I'm willing to be made willing. Those are her words. Some of you know Grace, and you know that she's more clear-thinking and articulate than I am. And those are her, her words. I'm not willing to go, but I'm willing to be made willing. With five children with, with chronic illness. Four, rather. And that was the beginning of a process that turned her mind completely to, to believe and trust in God, to leave the children with God and take them to the bush. We went to Kenya in 2018. I went originally to help start a small Bible college, which we did. Uh, but when I got there, the mission had changed with personnel, and I spent two years mostly looking after a compound with a clinic, a remote clinic, a baby rescue unit, an orphanage with 180 children, vocational training for boys and girls, huge, huge uh, campus or compound with 49 staff. And I spent two years uh, administering this compound. And I realized 
that the Lord had called me to teach pastors. And so in 2020, we returned to Northern Ireland uh, to begin a project that would help pastors in rural East Africa. Now, I had traveled a lot in Kenya, back and forward between the Ugandan border and Mombasa, the coast. And I'd worked with pastors and conferences across Kenya, and I'd racked my brain trying to discover what is the best way, the most optimal way to help pastors in rural East Africa. The first missionary to East Africa, the first Protestant missionary to East Africa was a man called Ludwig Krupp, Johann Ludwig Krupp, a German out under an Anglican, evangelical Anglican mission called the Church Missionary Society, the CMS. Ludwig Krupp went out there in 1844. Anyone ever heard of Ludwig Krupp? I thought not. You don't count. I was in a seminary in, in Ontario last year, in, in, and I met the professor of missions in the lobby. And I got talking to him, and I said, have you ever heard of Ludwig Krupp? No, he hadn't. And he was, a, he was the, teaching, the teacher of missions. Ludwig Krupp, the first missionary to East Africa, he opened up the east coast of Africa for the gospel. Two years before David Livingstone published his travels, Ludwig Krupp had published his in German. But Livingstone got the limelight. Of course, he was an Englishman or a Scotsman working for an English organization. But Ludwig Krupp arrived in 1844. Two months later, his wife died. Of a, of an, she'd just given birth to a little baby. She died of an infection of the womb in Mombasa, on Mombasa Island. And after he recovered from that tragedy. His wife died one day. He took her across the estuary to bury her on the mainland. He came back heavily, suffering heavily from malaria. He came back the following day. He took his child across to bury beside her mother. A few months later, he wrote these words to the, to the uh, Missionary Society in England. Tell the committee that in East Africa there is a lonely grave of one member of the mission connected with your society. This is an indication that you have begun the conflict in this part of the world. And since the conquests of the church are won over the graves of many of its members, you may be all the more assured that the time has come when you are called to work for the conversion of Africa. Think not of the victims, just weeks after his wife had died, think not of the victims who in this glorious warfare may suffer or fall, only press forward until East and West Africa are united for Christ. This is a man with strategy, this is a man with faith, this is a man with tenacity, this is a man with vision. And if you want to read about Ludwig Krupp, you can buy this biography for sale tonight at $12. Or otherwise, you can get them on Amazon. I only have three copies left. 
Uh, it was published last year by Joshua Press. But Ludwig Krupp stayed in, in Africa until 1850. He, his health had deteriorated uh, and he had to get out of, of Africa. And uh, he's known today, he's known today for his work uh, in linguistics, if you're a linguist and you study uh, North African, North East African languages, Ethiopic, uh, Swahili, and you're in scholarly literature in those languages, you'll read of the name of Ludwig Krupp. He pioneered that field. Uh, that was 140-odd years ago. And he hoped, he said, that in 20, 10 or 20 years, there would be an extensive literature for the Church of Christ in Africa. Here we are over 140 years later, and those rural pastors in the very same place where Ludwig Krupp worked are sitting with nothing. Nothing, as far as resources are concerned. Libraries, for many pastors in East Africa, libraries are unknown. For many pastors, seminaries are unknown. And I wonder, I think to myself, what in the world has the church been doing? I'm not saying missionaries haven't been doing, haven't been working. But I, will, I would argue this, that we have not optimized our work. We have not optimized our work. And I would argue this, that we have evangelized at the expense of mentoring and discipling. Hugely. Hugely. You go to Africa, and it's blatant. It's blatant. And so as I traveled in Africa, and I thought, how can we best help these men? It is not by loading up 20-foot containers full of books and shipping them out. I, I was receiving books, boxes of books, Spurgeon's commentaries, J.C. Ryle, uh, old commentaries written 100 and 200 years ago in Old English, and, and shipping them out. And many people here in the West are with good intentions seeking to help the African church. But there's a problem with that, and here it is. The African in Kenya, let me speak for East Africa, are coming from an oral culture. English is not their first language. And so they struggle with reading and comprehending English. They struggle with assimilating what they read. And when I began to teach, I discovered this very quickly. I would lecture, you would lecture in, in the format that we would normally lecture. After two weeks, I set them a paper and it was blank. And I discovered that we need to figure out a method of, of, of teaching here. And I, I, I began more Socratic method of, of, of question and answers interacting with them and, and it, it came to me one night it came to me one night as one of the pastors sitting under a thatched roof we were meeting with some pastors and as the pastors began to dissipate into the darkness my translator Julius said to me just a throwaway comment he said we need to create a culture of reading among these guys and I clicked let me give you some background that's going to uh, I'll not say embarrass me, but it doesn't put me in a good light anyhow. Uh, when I went through school, I struggled 
right through school, all my way through school. I left school with nothing, no qualifications except for art and technical drawing. And you don't need those in the bush. That was one of the exams I could pass in school. Because I couldn't, I, it was years later after a couple of seminaries and colleges and, and uh, so forth, it was years later that I learned how to learn. Right? You have to learn how to learn. How to read, to assimilate, to retain, and then to articulate. And this is what I told the students in Africa. If you can't assimilate it, if you can't get it into your mind and assimilate it in your own words, then you can't articulate it. And that's the key. And that's what they struggle with. And so, last year, we come home in 2020 to Belfast and we set up this project. I, I wasn't sure what I was going to call it. I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, and then we called it the Krupp Project. And we arrived just before lockdown. Remember COVID? Just before lockdown, just about a month before lockdown. And we were locked down for three months. I had no job. And um, that's when I wrote this. This is my, this is my lockdown project. And so we called the project after Ludwig Krupp, the Krupp Project, to continue the legacy that Krupp had already begun. The flagship of that project is a magazine. We do other material. I'm publishing. We've just signed a contract, actually, for the publication of a biography in Kenya. This will be coming out in a few months' time. We've also a contract with another book on the Holy Spirit by Dr. Michael Haken. In that book, and in books that we publish, we, we, I, I abridge, abridge it and add also uh, questions and answers, questions and, and discussion at the back of each chapter that, that enables and encourages the pastors to read and to, to assimilate and to understand what they're reading. But let me finish with this magazine. This is, this is the, the keystone to the project at the present time. This is designed for rural pastors with a purpose of developing, helping develop a culture of reading. We take, it, we take a story out of the Bible. This is the story of Jonah. We, will do, we did the story of David and Goliath. We did the story of Moses at the bush. The largest article in this magazine is a thousand words. Two and a half pages. Every other, that's the, that's the commentary on the, on the section of Scripture. So that's the largest, it's the center feature article. Every other article in this magazine is either 600 words or 300 words. It fits on a page. It fits on a page. So that when a pastor opens it and he, and he looks at it, he can see the start and ending of the article. He knows he can conquer it. He knows he can read it. That's huge. That's huge for a pastor who's not, who, who's, whose habits of study have not been developed. And so we have articles at 600 words, 300 words, page and a half, 450 words, or so forth. They're all the articles, all the articles, for the most part, uh, deal with the story, the feature story, Jonah in this case. We have church history, Dr. Michael Haken does our church history. We have pastoral or practical theology, written, uh, Dr. Joel Beakey has, a, has an article in it every quarter, goes out every quarter. 
Uh, we have also African writers writing on pastoral theology, practical theology, disciplines of theology that pastors need to know of and study, along with the exegesis of Scripture. It is also not just, not just expository preaching, it is theologically, theological biblical preaching to give an overview of the Bible, where this story fits in the Bible, how it fits in the, in the history of redemption, and how it plugs in to the story of the gospel. All of this is important to teach the African pastor. And this, this magazine is designed specifically, specifically for that. The magazine has been really encouraging. Uh, an organization in Nairobi called Ecclesia Africa um, picked, up, picked it up, and they're running with it faster than I can keep up. Print, I print a thousand copies and distribute a thousand copies in, in Kenya every quarter. 500 are uh, distributed in Uganda every quarter. But Ecclesia Africa also translate at their own expense, translate the magazine into a, a bilingual edition, English and Swahili, so that the reader can see English and Swahili on two columns and help some reader. That's another huge step. But that's at their expense. It has fitted in so well with their ministry. And it's, it's, it's really encouraging to see how the magazine has developed and grown, in, especially in Kenya. We're reaching out into Uganda. Uh, I also have six countries in East Africa that we send out a daily commentary, a little daily reading with commentary, six WhatsApp groups in six different East African countries uh, with over almost 500 pastors every day. Not when I'm traveling, but when I'm back home, I'll start again. Uh, that's going out to almost 500 pastors. They need mentoring. They need direct contact. They need drip feed. They need small, bite-sized material. Beloved, I'm here tonight. When I left Africa in 2020, uh, I told the pastors, I'm, going, I'm taking my family back to UK and I'll be an advocate for you. And that's why I'm here, to be an advocate for the pastors in rural East Africa. I thank your pastors for the opportunity to present it to you. Uh, if, if the Lord lays it upon your heart and the Holy Spirit moves you to support the work, don't quench the Holy Spirit. And you can find us on the web. You can uh, sign up. There's a sign-up sheet at the back. You can sign up for, the, for our e-newsletter. Send it out every month or so. And also a, a PDF. We send out a PDF of the magazine to our supporters. Um, and brochures. Pray, pray for the ministry. Pray for the pastors. Pray for my family. Um, I'm part-time with this, building this project and part-time pastoring in rural part of Northern Ireland over towards the West Coast in Donegal. Uh, so I'm part-time with that. Uh, it takes me more than full-time to keep up with all of that work and to uh, spend time with my family. I spend normally about three weeks in Africa every year doing seminars and teaching in Africa uh, and keeping up to date with the pastors. I trust the Lord will bless his word to your hearts and bless uh, 
the report of the work and that you will take it upon your hearts and pray for the work. Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for your time. Amen.